It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome to the Mysteries Abound podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Paul. This week we're going to be looking at a number of stories, including how spontaneous human combustion works and an earth mystery, healing stones. There's the story of the mystery of the green children of Woolpit and seven of the weirdest human enigmas and a story about the dancing rocks of the racetrack player. Those stories and more on episode 19 of Mysteries Abound. Our first story today comes from the HowStuffWorks.com website, and it's written by Stephanie Watson. It's an unexplained phenomena. How spontaneous human combustion works. In December 1966, the body of 92-year-old Dr. J. Irving Bentley was discovered in his home in Pennsylvania by a meter reader. Actually, only part of Dr. Bentley's leg and slippered foot were found. The rest of his body had been burned to ashes. A hole in the bathroom floor was the only evidence of the fire that had killed him. The rest of the house remained perfectly intact. How could a man catch fire with no apparent source of spark or flame, and then burn so completely without igniting anything around him? Dr Bentley's case and several hundreds like it have been labelled Spontaneous Human Combustion, or SHC for short. Although he and other victims of the phenomenon burned almost completely, their surroundings, and even sometimes their clothes, remained virtually untouched. Can humans spontaneously burst into flames? A lot of people think spontaneous human combustion is a real occurrence, but most scientists aren't convinced. In this article, we will look at the strange phenomenon of spontaneous human combustion, see what believers have to say about it, and try to separate the scientific truth 
from the myths. What is spontaneous human combustion? Spontaneous combustion occurs when an object, in the case of spontaneous human combustion, a person, bursts into flame from a chemical reaction within, apparently without being ignited by an external heat source. The first known account of spontaneous human combustion came from the Danish anatomist Thomas Bartholin in 1663, who described how a woman in Paris went up in ashes and smoke while she was sleeping. The straw mattress on which she slept was unmarred by the fire. In 1673, a Frenchman named Jonas Dupont published a collection of spontaneous combustion cases. The hundreds of spontaneous human combustion accounts since that time have followed a similar pattern. The victim is almost completely consumed, usually inside his or her home. Coroners at the scene have sometimes noted a sweet smoky smell in the room where the incident occurred. What makes the charred bodies in the photos of spontaneous human combustion so peculiar is that the extremities often remain intact. Although the torso and head are charred beyond recognition, the hands, feet and or part of the legs may be unburned. Also, the room around the person shows little or no signs of a fire, aside from a greasy residue that is sometimes left on furniture and walls. In rare cases, the internal organs of a victim remain untouched while the outside of the body is charred. Not all spontaneous human combustion victims simply burst into flames. Some develop strange burns on their body which have no obvious source or emanate smoke from their body when no fire is present. And not every person who has caught fire has died. A small percentage of people have actually survived what has been called their spontaneous combustion. The theories. To combust, a human body needs two things. Intensely high heat and a flammable substance. Under normal circumstances, our body contains neither, but some scientists over the last several centuries have speculated on a few possible explanations for the occurrence. In the 1800s, Charles Dickens ignited great interest in spontaneous human combustion by using it to kill off a character in his novel Bleak House. The character named Crook was an alcoholic, following the belief at the time that spontaneous human combustion was caused by excessive amounts of alcohol in the body. Today, there are several theories. One of the most popular proposes that the fire is sparked when methane, a flammable gas produced when plants decompose, builds up in the intestines and is ignited by enzymes, which are proteins in the body that act as catalysts to induce and speed up chemical reactions. Yet most victims of spontaneous human combustion suffer greater damage to the outside of their body than to their internal organs, which seems to go against this theory. Other theories speculate that the fire begins as a result of a build-up of static electricity inside the body or from an external geomagnetic force exerted on the body. A self-proclaimed expert on spontaneous human combustion, Larry Arnold, has suggested that the phenomenon is the work of a new subatomic particle called a pyroton, which he says interacts with cells to create a mini-explosion but no scientific evidence proves the existence of this particle. As of March 2005, no one has offered scientific proof of a theory explaining spontaneous human combustion. If humans can't spontaneously combust, then what is the explanation for the stories and pictures of people who have seemingly burned from within? What science says. If spontaneous human combustion isn't real then what really occurred in the many pictures that exist of the charred bodies? A possible explanation is the wick effect, which proposes that the body, when lit by a cigarette, smouldering ember or other heat source, acts much like an inside-out candle. A candle is composed of a wick on the inside 
surrounded by a wax made of flammable fatty acids. The wax ignites the wick and keeps it burning. In the human body, the body fat acts as the flammable substance, and the victim's clothing or hair acts as the wick. As the fat melts from the heat, it soaks into the clothing and acts as a wax-like substance to keep the wick burning slowly. Scientists say this is why victims' bodies are destroyed, yet their surroundings are barely burned. And what about the images of a burned body with hands or feet left intact? The answer to that question may have something to do with the temperature gradient. The idea that the top of a seated person is hotter than the bottom. This is basically the same phenomenon that occurs when you hold a match with the flame at the bottom. The flame will often go out without provocation because the bottom of the match is cooler than the top. Finally, how does science account for the greasy stains left on walls and ceilings after a spontaneous combustion? They could simply be the residue that was produced when the victim's fatty tissue burned. No one has ever conclusively proven or disproven the truth of spontaneous human combustion. But most scientists say that there are more likely explanations for the charred remains. Many of the so-called victims of spontaneous human combustion were smokers who were later discovered to have died by falling asleep with a lit cigarette, cigar or pipe. A number of them were believed to have been under the influence of alcohol or to have suffered from a movement-restricting disease that prevented them from moving quickly enough to escape the fire. Another possibility is that some of the fires and strange states of the victims' bodies were the result of a criminal act and subsequent cover-up. Tales of Spontaneous Combustion These are just a few of the many hundred reported cases of spontaneous human combustion. In 1938, a 22-year-old woman named Phyllis Newcomb was leaving a dance at the Shire Hall in Chelmsford, England. As she descended the staircase of the hall, her dress suddenly caught fire with no apparent cause. She ran back into the ballroom where she collapsed. Several people rushed to her aid, but she later died in hospital. Although the theory was that Newcomb's dress had been ignited by a cigarette or lit by a match thrown from the stairwell, No evidence of either was ever found. The coroner, L. F. Beckles, commented on the incident. From all my experience, I have never come across a case so very mysterious as this. In 1951, a 67-year-old widow named Mary Reeser was at home in St. Petersburg, Florida. On the morning of July 2, a neighbour discovered that Mary's front door was hot. When she broke into the apartment with the help of two workmen, they found Mary in an easy chair with a black circle around her. Her head had been burned down to the size of a teacup. The only parts of her that remained were part of her backbone and part of her left foot. Other than Mary's charred remains, there was very little evidence of a fire in her apartment. A forensic pathologist, Dr Wilton Krogman, said of the incident, It's the most amazing thing I have ever seen. As I review it, the short hairs on my neck bristle with vague fear. Were I living in the Middle Ages, I'd mutter something about black magic. But the police report cited a far less supernatural explanation for the cause of death. A dropped cigarette which ignited Mrs. Reese's highly flammable rayon acetate nightgown. In 1982, a mentally handicapped woman named Jean Lucille, Jeannie Staffan, was sitting with her 82-year-old father at their home in Edmonton in northern London. According to her father, a flash of light caught his eye. When he turned to his daughter, he saw that her upper body was enveloped in flames. Mr Staffan and his son-in-law, Donald Carroll, managed to put out the blaze but Jeannie died of her third-degree burns about a week after entering the hospital. According to Carol, the flames were coming from her mouth like a dragon and they were making a roaring noise. There was no smoke or fire damage in the room. And some have wondered if an ember from her father's pipe ignited 
genie's clothing. And from the about.com paranormal phenomenon website, seven of the weirdest human enigmas. And this is an article by Stephen Wagner. Most kids love reading the colour funny papers on Sunday. As a kid, one of my favourite strips was Ripley's, believe it or not. It always featured some fantastic facts or coincidences. Often it would tell of people with unusual abilities characteristics or circumstances. A man with a birthmark in the shape of a perfect heart on his chest. A woman whose head was shaped like a Ming vase. Twins with six ears between them. Stuff like that. It makes interesting reading and of course I'm still fascinated by such amazing tales. Here are seven of the strangest stories of the most mysterious people of unknown origin, fate, or astonishing unexplained abilities. Number 1. The Green Children In 1887, two small children were found alone near the town of Banjos in Spain. But these were no ordinary children who had been lost or abandoned by parents. They were discovered by field hands who were distracted from their work by frightened cries Upon investigation, they found a small boy and girl, scared and crying, huddled near the entrance to a cave. Their language was unknown to the workers. It certainly wasn't Spanish. More mysterious still, they wore clothes made of a strange metallic cloth, and their skin had an odd green tint. After being taken to the village to be cared for, the boys soon died, since it was difficult to get either of them to eat anything. But the girl survived, and when at last she was able to communicate in Spanish with her caregivers, she told them that she and her brother had come from a place that had no sun, but a land of perpetual twilight. When asked how they came to be at the cave, she said that they had heard a loud bang, were pushed through something, and then were in the cave. The Bible records the account of Jonah who was swallowed by a whale or a great fish, but was later freed from the beast. In 1891, a British sailor lived through the same fate. The seamen aboard the whaling ship, the Star of the East, struggled to kill a great sperm whale and bring it on board. In the battle between man and beast, two sailors disappeared. But when the whale's stomach and liver hoisted onto the deck of the ship, it was noticed that something was moving inside the stomach. Cutting open the stomach, the crew found James Bartley, one of the missing men, curled up, unconscious, but still alive. The Disappearance of Bernardo Vasquez Twenty-year-old Bernardo Vasquez was obsessed with the unknown and black magic, as well as getting rich but people who knew him in San Juan, Puerto Rico, say he may have succeeded with a bizarre experiment that made him invisible. After consulting his books on the occult, he one day told his mother that he had learned how to become invisible through a strange ritual involving a black cat, wood from an old coffin and a tin can. He believed that by boiling the cat and using a resulting bone to place under his tongue, he could be invisible at will. One night he barricaded himself in his room at the back of the house to carry out the ritual. His mother became concerned when he never came out and she called the authorities. They had to break into his room where they found the disturbing remnants of his ritual, the burned wood and a disemboweled black cat. But Bernardo was nowhere to be found. Did he indeed become invisible? Or did he vanish into the unknown? 
Benedetto Sapino's astonishing and dangerous abilities came to public attention in the early 1980s, when he was just 10 years old. Benedetto of Formia, Italy, could set things afire just by staring at them. More often, his power to start fires was involuntary, erupting merely by his presence. The first incident took place in 1982 in a dentist's waiting room. Without cause or warning, the comic book Benedetto was reading suddenly caught fire. One morning he was awakened by a fire in his own bed. His pyjamas were in flames and the boy suffered severe burns. On another occasion, a small plastic object held in his uncle's hands began to burn as Benedetto stared at it. Just about everywhere he went, furniture, paper, books and other items would start to smoulder or burn. Some witnesses even claimed to see his hands glow at these moments. The Delphos Wolf Girl There are many stories of feral children, children who apparently have been raised in the wild, sometimes by animals and adopting animal-like behaviour. But the story of the wolf girl sighted near Delphos, Kansas in the early 1970s is one of the strangest. Weirder still, it might have a UFO connection. It began in July 1974 when reports began to come in of the sighting of a wild-looking girl of about 10 to 12 years of age. Witnesses said she had matted yellow hair and wore ragged red clothing. Upon being sighted, the girl would scamper away like an animal on all fours. During searches for the girl by authorities around the central Kansas town, some people were attacked and scratched by the girl. The possible UFO connection actually begins two years earlier in 1971, when 16-year-old Ronald Johnson claimed to see a mushroom-shaped UFO land in a wooden area near Delphos. He further claimed that seeing the UFO had injured his eyes, but had also given him psychic powers. It was during this time that he said he encountered a wild, blonde-haired girl who ran away from him on all fours. Was it the same girl? And was there a UFO connection? Zana the Ape Woman Zana's story is that of another feral female, but her story is quite different than others. While feral children are wild and animal-like in behaviour, but always human, Zana actually looked somewhat less than human. Discovered in the mid-1700s in the Russian province of Georgia, Zana, as she was named, had many ape-like features. Thick arms, legs and fingers, and she was covered with hair. Some have speculated that she was a survivor of the Neanderthal race, or perhaps a female Bigfoot, or some human-ape hybrid. And finally, defying gravity and belief. Daniel Douglas Home may not be as familiar a name to us today as Harry Houdini, but perhaps he should be. Either he was one of the greatest psychics of the 19th century, able to demonstrate remarkable, some say paranormal, feats, or was he one of the greatest magicians. At seances he could make heavy tables and chairs, often with people sitting in them, levitate. Under close observation, he could place his hands and face into red-hot coals without harm, and he could make himself grow and stretch up to 12 inches taller. In his most famous demonstration, he is said to have floated out of a window of a four-storey building and then appear outside an adjacent window, which he then climbed in to the astonishment of the audience. Unlike mediums of the day, Home welcomed scrutiny by scientists and sceptics. None were ever able to prove his feats were tricks or to explain how he accomplished them. And following on from the story of the green children from the previous article, there's this one from the www.mysteriouspeople.com website and it's entitled The Mystery of the Green Children of Woolpit, and it's by 
Brian Horton At harvest time during the chaotic reign of King Stephen of England, 1135 to 1154, there was a strange occurrence in the Suffolk village of Woolpit near Bury St Edmunds. While the reapers were working in the fields, two young children emerged from the deep ditches excavated to trap wolves, known as wolf pits, hence the name of the village. The children, a boy and a girl, had skin tinged with a green hue and wore clothes of a strange colour made from unfamiliar materials. They wandered around bewildered for a few minutes before being discovered by the reapers and taken to the village. Here the locals gathered round and questioned them, but no one was able to understand the language the children spoke. So they were taken to the house of local landowner Sir Richard de Colne, a few miles away at Wykes. Here they broke into tears and for some days refused to eat the bread and other food that was brought to them. But when newly shelled beans with their stalks still attached were brought in, the starving children immediately made signs that they were desperate to eat. However, when the children took the beans, they opened the stalks rather than the pods, and finding nothing inside, began weeping again. After they had been shown how to obtain the beans, the children survived on this food for many months until they acquired a taste for bread. As time passed, the boy who appeared to be the younger of the two became depressed, sickened and died, but the girl adjusted to her new life and was baptised. Her skin gradually lost its original green colour and she became a healthy young woman. She learned the English language and afterwards married a man of the nearby town of Lavenham, becoming rather loose and wanton in her conduct. After a few years, she was left a widow. Some sources claim that she took the name Agnes Barr and the man she married was a senior ambassador of Henry II. It is also said that the current Earl Ferrers is descended from her through intermarriage. When questioned about her past, the girl was only to relate vague details about where the children had come from and how they arrived at Woolpit. She stated that her and the boy were brother and sister and had come from the land of St. Martin, where it was perpetual twilight, and all the inhabitants were green in colour like they had been. She was not sure exactly where her homeland was located, but another luminous land could be seen across a considerable river separating it from theirs. She remembered one day that they were looking after their father's herds in the fields and had followed them into a cavern where they heard the sound of bells. Entranced, they wandered through the darkness for a long time until they were at the mouth of the cave where they were immediately blinded by the glaring sunlight. They lay down in a daze for a long time before the noise of the reapers terrified them and they rose and tried to escape but were unable to locate the entrance of the cavern before being caught. Originating in the 12th century, the strange fairy tale-like story of the green children remained in the popular imagination throughout subsequent history, as testified by references to it in Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy, written in 1621, and a description based on the original sources in Thomas Kiteley's The Fairy Mythology, 1828. There was even a supposed second sighting of green children in a place called Banjos in Spain in August 1887. However, the details of this event are almost exactly the same as in the Woolpit case, and the story seems to originate with John Macklin in his book Strange Destinies, 1965. There is nowhere called Banjos in Spain, and the account is merely a retelling of the 12th century English story.
And much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. And just a little feedback about the podcast. I found this one on Podcast Alley and it's submitted by Christy25. Top. I really appreciate your effort in podcasting and I hope you will continue all three podcast series, Origins, Mysteries Abound and Bizarre Bizarre. Thank you for your dedication. Well, thank you, Christy25Top. I really appreciate your feedback. I'm still thinking about whether to keep Bizarre Bizarre going or not. As you may have noticed, I haven't done it for a few weeks. I am having difficulty trying to do three, but I'll see what I can do. But Mysteries Abound and Origins are definitely going to continue. And remember, if you'd like to give the show some feedback, it really is greatly appreciated. The best places to do it are in iTunes or Podcast Alley, as they are the main two podcast sources on the internet. Or you can do it via email through paulrex at paulrex.com. But if you can give the show some feedback, it's really appreciated, as it does raise its profile and help to increase the number of downloads. Coming up in a few moments, an article from the whitcomb.sbc.edu forward slash earth mysteries website. Healing Stones. Over the centuries, much folklore has attached itself to megalithic sites in Britain. There is considerable evidence indicating that a stone cult existed in the prehistoric past, which Christianity was only partially successful in suppressing. The very necessity of the numerous edicts issued by the Church Council in the 5th, 6th and 8th centuries CE against all pagan cults connected with springs and wells, trees and stones, which no doubt included megalithic standing stones, is indicative of their presence. According to Leslie Grinsell in his book Folklore of Prehistoric Britain, 1976, in the late 9th century CE, the Council of Nantes in France condemned the veneration of stones. Various decrees not only prohibited the worship of stones, but also declared guilty of sacrilege anyone who neglected to destroy them. It is clear, however, that standing stones continue to be venerated throughout the medieval period and even later. In 1410, according to the Hereford Cathedral Registers, the Bishop of Hereford issued a proclamation forbidding the worship of the stone and well at Turnerstone in Herefordshire. It would appear that one of the most popular reasons for venerating standing stones was the belief in their ability to cure illness and other ailments. Anglo-Saxon laws were sometimes directed specifically against people who sought cures at stones. In his account of Stonehenge, written in the 12th century, Geoffrey Monmouth notes that in these stones is a mystery and a healing virtue against many ailments. At Stonehenge the stones were washed and the water poured into baths in which the sick then bathed. Healing properties continued to be attributed to the stones at Stonehenge in the 17th and 18th century. It has been suggested that the association of these stones with healing may have come about through the confusion of heal, H-E-A-L, and heal, H-E-E-L, with both words possibly a corruption of the name Helios, the Greek name for sun and the sun god. That numerous megalithic sites, standing stones and stone circles have astronomical associations has been convincingly demonstrated by Alexander Tom and in the case of Stonehenge in particular by Sir Norman Lockyer, Gerald Hawkins and Fred Hoyle. The so-called heel stone at Stonehenge should properly be called the Helios stone or sunstone over which the sun rose at the summer solstice. Healing properties were especially associated with the stones with holes in them, 
The most famous example is Menenthol, also known as the Crickstone near Madron in Cornwall. According to an 18th century source, sufferers from pains in the back and limbs were cured after crawling through the hole. Also, children suffering from rickets, a disease of infancy and childhood characterised by defective bone growth caused by a lack of vitamin D in the body, or a crick in the neck, would be cured after being passed three or nine times through the hole, usually against the sun. For the cure to work, it was important that boys were passed from a woman to a man and girls from a man to a woman. A similar practice was performed at the Tolvan Stone, also in Cornwall. Here, the ceremony involved passing the child nine times through the hole, alternately from one side to the other. In a 19th century engraving illustrated on this website can be seen a woman about to pass a baby through the hole to a person on the other side. It was essential to the cure that the child should emerge on the ninth passing through the hole on the side of the stone where there was a little grassy mound on which the child should be set to sleep with a sixpence under his or her head. Folklore has attributed similar healing properties to the Long Stone in the parish of Minchinhampton in Gloucestershire. Known locally as the Holy Stone, this slab of oolitic limestone stands nearly 8 feet high with a thickness of about 18 inches. Believed to be the last surviving fragment of a long barrow chamber, the stone has two holes in it, through the larger of which mothers would pass their children to cure them of whooping cough or rickets. Folklore also tells that the long stone runs around the field it is in when it hears the town clock in nearby Minchinhampton strike midnight. And if you go to my website at www.origins.info and click on the Mysteries Abound link and then on the link to episode number 19, you can see a link to this article and it has a couple of those engravings and there's actually a photograph of the long stone at Minchinhampton, Gloucestershire as well. And from the www.subversiveelement.com website, The Dancing Rocks of the Racetrack Player. Deep within Death Valley National Park is a place called the Racetrack Player. It lies 3,708 feet above sea level, is 2.8 miles long and 1.3 miles wide. It is almost perfectly flat, The north end is only 5 centimetres higher than the south end. It is called the racetrack player and is home to a unique phenomenon. It seems that while no one is looking, the dolomite rocks which crumble from the cliff face at the southern end travel whimsically across the vast dry lake bed. The rocks leave trails behind them as they make their way, the only testament to their unruly behaviour. The phenomenon was noticed a hundred years ago by explorers and gold miners, but was not really studied scientifically until about 1948. To this day, the reason for their wayward ways has not been fully explained. There are two main schools of thought surrounding it, one which says ice sheets are responsible for the rock's travails, and the other that a combination of dampness and tornadic winds provide the force. 
Interestingly, proponents of each have debunked the other's claims by showing faults in the scientific process at which the various conclusions seem to reach. It has even been suggested that the rock's motion is the result of teenage pranksters. This theory can be ruled out right away, as the footprints of the culprits would be visible as well. Some of the trails, including footprints of people, can be fossilised for years before fading. The furrows of the rocks show that the player is wet when they do move. As a rule, it is never considered that the rocks might also be moving when the player is dry, leaving no trails, except by lunatic fringe extremists like myself. One school of thought is that ice sheets form on the lake bed in the winter and the sections break off and are squeezed and pushed along, thus providing the much-needed force to push a 700-pound boulder for three-quarters of a mile in a winding, twisting path. The theory, though, faces several inconvenient facts. For one thing, while many rock trails do seem to travel parallel to one another, they in truth do not and one will abruptly turn away from the other at seemingly random intervals. In the 50s, an experiment was performed to test the theory and prove conclusively that the ice sheet was not moving the rocks. The other school of thought says that a combination of exotic wind-gusting conditions, a slick lake bed, not too wet but not too dry, all add up to make the rocks move. In truth, the erratic but yet generally northward movements of the rocks support the wind gust theory. So to with the soil conditions, a lower coefficient of friction would greatly reduce the amount of force needed to move everything from one pound rocks to one third of a ton boulders around like a magic game of shuffleboard combined with ice hockey. However, there are problems with this theory as well. The rocks are leaving furrows as they move, so even in slippery mud, the normal force exerted on the rock needs to be relatively high. Another question is why does this only happen in one place on the earth? And an even bigger question is, where do the rocks go when they reach the far side of the player? There should be thousands of rocks at the northern face of the lake bed. It is well known that the rocks begin their journey at the southern end, where a large dolomite cliff is slowly crumbling. Yet, strangely enough, the rocks seem to disappear once they have crossed Playa, and there are very few to be found. The lake bed is now considered a protected wildlands, part of the Death Valley National Park. The lake bed has been a favourite place from everything from drug smugglers to rock thieves. The rocks all have names, and the new laws surrounding the area are making it more and more difficult to study the phenomenon. As protected wildlands, the lake bed must be kept in pristine natural condition. This means that no one is allowed on the player while it is wet. You are not allowed to drive anything, even a bicycle on the surface, at any point. Dolomite in general does not contain any iron, thus ruling out that magnetism may be playing a role in the mystery. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. And I'd just like to apologise for the slight delay in this podcast coming to air. It's been a few weeks since the last one and that's mainly due to the fact that it's school holidays here in Australia and I've had the two teenage boys and my wife who's a school teacher at home and trying to find a bit of quiet time to do a recording is really hard. And it's also been quite hot and stormy so I've had to tuck myself away in the bedroom where the air conditioner is and put all the recording gear together to record this podcast a little bit shorter than normal, but I'm trying to get things back in order so that I can do my weekly podcast on a regular basis. And to finish off today, a couple of mysterious tales. This article comes from the mysterymag.com website from their Strange Stories 
Elemental Energy section. A few weeks ago, myself and my partner visited Bluebell Hill. We experienced nothing there, but it was on the way back that we had a traumatic supernatural experience. We were riding back towards Faversham through Hollingbourne and just past the Ringlestone Inn before Doddington. We stopped at some woodland, both being pagans, we liked walking through woodland, so we had to have a bit of an explore following the signposted footpath that didn't lead anywhere. We turned round and walked back and decided to follow the footpath on the other side of the road up a small incline past a large tree. This footpath also ended abruptly at a barbed wire fence. We decided to have a sit and rest. However, after a short while, I began to realise that I was getting very tense. I had a feeling of being watched and of extreme hatred and anger. At first I tried to ignore it, but it just got stronger and I told my partner of my discomfort. She was feeling the same discomfort and as we acknowledged the feelings, they intensified. It was a very strong feeling of being driven away, that we weren't wanted there. We left as quickly as we could, but I felt very weak and my partner commented how pale I'd become. I needed her help in manoeuvring the bike back on the road because I didn't have the strength on my own, which had never been a problem before. Even after we left, the feelings of anger, hate, fear and sadness stayed with us for a while. I didn't want to go straight home, I just wanted to ride around and shake the feelings. But I couldn't, and I also had the feeling of my partner being pulled off the bike. I couldn't feel her holding on anymore, my torso had gone numb. I had to look down to make sure I could see her hands around my waist. I felt as if I was carrying an unseen and unwanted passenger. I finally decided to go home as it was the safest place I could think of. It has had a protection spell on it as a matter of course. It was at the moment that I decided to go home that the terrible feelings lifted. I could feel my partner again. When we got home, I had to lie on the bed to collect my thoughts. I was so shaken by the experience and couldn't speak until I felt safe in my home. We discussed the events and found that we both had the same feelings and how worried she had been at my appearance and the effect the experience had on me. We have since tried to find out some more information on the area but have found nothing to explain our experience. And the second story comes from the paranormal.about.com website under the Your True Tales section. And this one's entitled Granny Poltergeist and it's by an author called Kiki. This took place at my parents' house in Thoroughfare, New Jersey in 2006. Prior to my experience, my parents have told me about weird things that have happened to them. They had recently moved into a house that was previously owned by a man who lived there with his wife and his mother. His mother passed away in the guest room and they moved out shortly after. One night, my mum awoke to a loud crashing sound. She walked into the kitchen and found all of the food from the cabinets on the floor. I mean, everything. The cabinets are very sturdy and there was no way the doors would just open and everything would come tumbling out from every cabinet in the kitchen. My parents also smell a very strong rosy perfume by the kitchen sink for no reason. We don't even wear perfume or keep flowers in the house because my mum is allergic. Objects also disappear and reappear in very strange places. As well as the time my parents came home to find some of the pictures in the living room hanging upside down. My experience happened when I had come home from college one weekend and was lying in the bed in the same room Granny, the name we have come to refer to our ghost as, passed away in. I was not tired and I was not asleep. 
I had just turned off the TV when I started having weird visions of an old lady walking down a very long hallway. I couldn't make out details, but it was definitely an old lady, and I remember being freaked out because I had no control of the visions. The next thought I remember thinking is, do not open your eyes, do not open your eyes, over and over again. All of a sudden, I was completely paralysed and felt a very heavy weight on my chest like someone was lying on top of me. I don't understand how, but a strong wind started in my room. The windows were closed. And a sound that I can only compare to a train whizzing by very quickly almost deafened me. This continued for about a minute. The whole time I had my eyes squeezed shut. I could barely breathe let alone scream. After it ended, the room was completely silent and still, and with my eyes closed, I reached over to turn on my light, but it would not turn on. I also tried to turn the TV back on with the remote, but it would not work. I slept with my mum that night, and no one in my family has ever had any other problems in the room or the house. This was definitely the creepiest thing that has ever happened to me. Well, that concludes episode 19 of Mysteries Abound. It's a bit shorter this time, and I'm sorry it's that way, but I've had a bit of a mucked-up time here in Australia, and I'm, like I said, I'm trying to get things back to normal. I have had this podcast on the computer for a couple of weeks in bits and pieces, so it may be a little bittier than normal. Anyway, things should be back together for episode 20, hopefully. Bye for now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.